If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. All right, Ed, here we are again, and we are going to tackle something a little more serious today Mm -hmm. that has divided a lot of Christians and has been divisive in some families even. Yeah, we're going to talk about baptism. And you and I have not talked about this offline. I don't think we ever have, or not much. Yeah, maybe we never have. And I don't know the Catholic thinking behind this. I don't know. I don't know the the theory behind it. I come at it from a Protestant point of view. I was raised in a Baptist church, and so up until now, baptism has meant to me something that a believer does. I have always thought of it as not only an outward sign of an inward change but as something that you do to proclaim, something you do to let the world know. This, this is, there's no getting around this. We're going to take you up in front of church and dip you in the water. There's just no, this is a proclamation, right? And I have always thought that there was something mystical about it, but it's never talked about that way in the Protestant church. When I worked at the, at the big church, they were sort of a reform theology, and so it was, I would argue with them about infants and believers and and you're right it's a it can be a divisive issue so the question is why does the catholic church baptize infants versus baptizing adult believers or where and actually we had a couple of listeners write in about this and you know it's like well why wouldn't i just let my kids decide for themselves when the time comes when they are ready to except Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, they can be baptized at that time. Okay, so let's talk about it. And I I think here's where I want to start. I want to start with two questions, kind of rhetorical questions, right? The first rhetorical question is, what is sin? What is particularly the the sin that Jesus frees us from? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, both those who baptize believers and those who baptize infants agree that Jesus redeems us from sin. But what exactly is the nature of that sin that he redeems us from? Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the first question I want to talk about. And the second question is, what is the sequence in salvation? In other okay, words, yeah. who makes the first move in salvation? Okay. God or man? Okay. okay. Yeah. And what is the sequence of how that I plays like out? That. So let's start with the first thing about sin. So when we think of sin, especially in our contemporary context, the obvious thing we think of is the bad things we do. So when you went over there in the woods a little earlier, I, I took one of the cough drops out of your right. bag of cough drops here. I'm confessing. That Which I'm eating like Halloween candy right now. Well, you are. But and and when you but when you went over to visit the trees, I I I took one. 
so, right, I mean, when we do bad things, when I steal Ed's cough drop or I do any other bad thing, I make a bad moral choice, we right. think of that as a sin. And we're right, that is a sin. But it's not the only thing that sin is, and it's not the only context in which sin occurs. Biblically, classically in Christianity, there's two senses of sin, at least two, and the one is original sin, right. and the other is personal sin. Yep. And different names we could apply to it, but that basically, the concept of original sin is the sin that we inherit from Adam. And this is Paul, Book of Romans, in Adam all have sinned. Right. Right? So Adam and Eve made a choice to turn their back on God. And in a sense, all of their descendants inherited that choice. Okay, right. Right? We all live with the consequences of Adam and Eve's choice. That becomes passed down to us. In Adam, all have sinned. Yep. Right? And so you think about that. Like, your great-great-great-great-grandfather made a choice. Like, let's, let's take something that's innocuous. Like, your great-great-great-grandfather decided to move to America from Ireland or right. whatever. Right? Left the old country. And so he came here. Well, all of his descendants then are are going to inherit that choice because they're all going to grow up in Americans, right. not Irish yeah, exactly, people, yeah. right? So the things that our ancestors decided have implications for us. Right. Abram left the land of Ur and followed God to the land of Canaan, and therefore all of Abram's descendants inherited Abram's choice. Sure. To follow Yahweh, the Lord, into the land of Canaan. They become the children of Abraham, right? Yep. So Adam and Eve sinned, and then that sin is passed on to all of us. Right. Now, we could talk about the ways that manifests itself. For one thing, we became mortal. Yep. Uh, one, one, you know, one of the things I've often thought about is it's almost like there's a congenital defect in us. You know, like you inherit diseases or congenital defects. Like something fundamentally changed in the human DNA. Right. In our DNA, we have inherited mortality. We, when God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Right. Right. And so, therefore, from that point on, all of us have been subject to death and disease and decay and sin. Mm -hmm. That's something that we're born with. It's something coded into our DNA. You with me? Yep. So the, the little baby that's born and has made no bad moral choices, the little one-day-old baby, one-month-old baby, right. one-year-old boy be, has made no moral choice. I would also argue that we are born self-centered mm. and that there is something in human nature. Yeah. Like the notion that that child left to itself will grow up to be an angel Right. It is, right? That's what parenting is about. That's what teaching it. That's what raising it. Because there is something that's sort of kind of broken in us. Sure. That we inherit from the sin of Adam. And then as we grow up, we then make personal moral choices. So the kid grows up and becomes whatever, disobeys, does this, right. steals a cookie, steals a car, right. steals a whatever, right? So what is it exactly that Jesus redeems us from? Does he only redeem us from our personal moral sins or does he redeem us from original sin and and here is why this is interesting 
because the original sin is something that we didn't choose, something we're born with. Right. And then the personal sin is something that, you know, obviously, yep. you know, we, we, we choose when we reach a certain age of, of right. reason where we can make those choices. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. Now let me move to the second question. I said there were two questions. And this, the second question was, what's the sequence of salvation? Who moves first or who makes the first move in salvation? So does God say, I'm going to put an offer out there for you? I mean, I came, died on a cross, rose on the third day. Now I lay an offer before you. If you choose to take up my offer of forgiveness, then you're saved. Right. Okay, let's go to scripture on this. Because when you look at scripture on this thing, you see that God often makes the first move to redeem people from original sin. Okay. All right. Let's go back to, say, when we mentioned Abram a few minutes ago, right? Right. So God comes to this man, Abram, living in the land of Ur, and, and says to him, Genesis 12, you know, follow me to a land that I shall show you, right? Right. And then he makes these promises to him. I shall make your descendants as great as the stars in the sky and the, you know, sand of the baby. He makes a covenant with Abram. And all of Abram's descendants will inherit that covenant. So he, God moves to redeem Abram's descendants before, not only ha- before they've done anything wrong, but before they're even born. born. Yeah. They have been marked as God's people. There is an Abrahamic covenant with all right. of the descendants of Abraham, right? Yep. That's, that's pretty fundamental yep. biblical theology. Yep. And that is prior to those descendants not only not choosing to accept God's covenant, they aren't asked if they will accept the covenant. Right. It isn't as if God says, when a- any of Abram's descendants gets old enough to decide if they want to enter into this covenant, I right. have laid it out there as an open offer. Right. He makes the covenant. Let's go forward to Moses. God comes to Moses and says, bring my people to Mount Sinai. And when they get to Mount Sinai, in Exodus 20, he says, you shall be my holy nation. I shall make you a holy nation, uh, a kingdom of priests, right? a nation special among the world. Now, these are the mumbling, grumbling Israelites who have done right. nothing right so far. I mean, they right, were the slaves right. in Egypt. Even as slaves, in, they didn't do anything. In fact, the only qualification that they had as slaves in Egypt for anything was that they were descendants of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. Right? So they didn't choose to be God's holy people. They didn't even really choose to leave Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt through the right. plagues and right. all these things, right. and he took them out. He brought them to Sinai and said, I shall make, un- make thee a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a light to the world, and I shall right. make a covenant, a mosaic covenant with them. And right. he gives them the Ten Commandments, Right. Right. That covenant is not dependent upon them accepting it. God does not bring, say, to the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, here's the thing, I'm going to put an offer out there. There's an offer on the table. And the offer on the table is, if you guys want to obey these Ten Commandments that I'm going to lay out here, and you choose to do that, then great or you want to take up my offer of this covenant, then we'll celebrate it. No, he marks them as his people. He consecrates them. We've talked about this word before, consecrate, which basically means to set aside and make holy for God's purposes. Okay? 
when you sanctify or consecrate something, you take an ordinary object and you set it aside for God and anoint it or consecrate it so that it is to be for his purposes. That's what God does to Abram. That's what God does to the people, the Hebrew slaves Mm -hmm. in the Mosaic Covenant. And remember, like even while Moses is up on the mountain receiving this Mosaic Covenant, the people are down there worshiping the golden calf. So God's covenant with them is not dependent on their acceptance of it. Right. Okay. Let's go forward. After that, he tells Moses in the Pentateuch how to build this tabernacle and later the temple. And he says, okay, you're going to go get all this wood and gold and stones and you're going to create this tabernacle and subsequently this temple and you're going to adorn it and sanctify it and anoint it and make it special and holy so that I can dwell in it. Right. Now, again, that's something that you are setting aside, sanctifying, anointing, and making it a place where God can come. It has not yet decided that the Israelites will be faithful. Right. That they will accept it, that they will follow through. God's covenants are not dependent on our acceptance of them. Right, okay. God makes the covenant, and then we either keep it or don't. Let's go forward. So the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse and has says, God has told me that one of your sons shall be king of Israel. Remember the story? And he has seven sons, and the first one comes in, and he's a big, you know, strong lad, right. and God says, nope, it's not that one. Not that one. And he finally goes, don't you have any other sons? Why have this, you know, this last little boy and, you know, David, and he's running around up the mountains and, and, and bring him down. And God says, anoint him. I am anointing him to be the king of Israel. David hasn't done anything yet. Right. And yet God anoints him and consecrates him and sets him aside for his purpose. Mm -hmm. So you seeing a pattern here? Yep. So let's pull these two threads together. When it comes to original sin and personal sin, God anoints or marks his people through these covenants to, in a sense, redeem them from original sin. And these are all imperfect. The Abrahamic covenant, yep. the Mosaic covenant, all of these are imperfect. They're, they, right? The Mosaic covenant does not completely redeem us from sin, but right. it was a foreshadowing, a sign of what was to come. That in the that it pointed to what the more perfect covenant that we made in Christ, right? Right. But the principle is that God sets aside people for His purposes, mm-hmm. okay, and anoints them. Now, what was the sign of being a set aside for God's purposes in the Old Testament under the Abrahamic covenant? Uh, circumcision. Circumcision. So when the Jews or the Hebrews were circumcised, it does not mean that that Hebrew boy isn't going to grow up and do bad things. Right. What it means is that he has been marked and set aside for God's purposes. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it points to the redemption of original sin, the sin he was born with and brought into this world, not the sin he has chosen to do. Right. Okay. Right. So that, that mark of circumcision was that means of sort of anointing and setting aside and marking for God's purposes. Now, the early Christians, and I'll get to this in a second, the biblical passages, but the early Christians from the beginning 
saw baptism as replacing circumcision as the mark of the new covenant. Mm -hmm. Just as circumcision was the mark of that imperfect covenant that set aside and redeemed from original sin and consecrated for God's purposes a person for that covenant, so baptism replaces it as the mark of the perfect covenant. So in the same way you would take the, the Hebrew child and circumcise him yep. to mark him for God's purposes, even though he might grow up and reject the covenant, even though he might grow up and be a bad person. Right. At that point, though, he is living under the, the mark and the authority and the consequences. So you, what you could say about that Hebrew was that he has walked away from the covenant promises of God that God made to okay. him in his circumcision. Baptism for the first Christians was seen as replacing that. So they baptized the children as a way to mark them. To You know, when, like I said a minute ago with the ark or the temple, you would come and consecrate the space so that God could come and make it a covenant right. dwelling. When an infant was baptized, it was not a sign or a proclamation that this child has decided to make good moral choices right, right. or has decided to accept the covenant. It was a sign that the covenant has been given to him. Right. Now, people will say, well, where is that in Scripture? Well, it's interesting. There is not a verse that says, thou shalt baptize infants. Right. There is also not a verse that says, thou shalt not baptize infants. So the New Testament, to understand this, it has to be inferred mm -hmm. from the larger context of Scripture, from three sources, the larger context of Scripture, secondly, inferred from passages that do to refer to baptism. Right. And third, what the teaching of the early church was in the generation following the apostles. So, right. so those who learned from the apostles. Right. Okay? So let's go through those. What I just laid out was basically the con larger context of scripture. Yep. That baptism, in a sense, replaces circumcision as God initiating a covenant promise in the life of that child. Okay? Yep. Secondly, when we look at the passages of Scripture, we can look at a passage like, for example, in Colossians 2, where Paul specifically equates baptism with circumcision. He says, the old circumcision marked you for the covenant of Abraham, but you have been marked in baptism with the new covenant of Christ. Okay. Now, does that verse specifically say, Christian parents, baptize your infants? No. That's sort of not the phraseology or what Paul, right. but Paul is drawing in Colossians 2, I think it's 10 through 12, a very, very tight correlation right. that between right. circumcision as a God-initiated covenant mark under the old law right. and baptism being a marking of the new perfect covenant in Christ. We can look at a number of instances where people are baptized in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. So what we see in the book of Acts is people's whole households being baptized. Now, naturally, you see a lot of believers being baptized because there's converts. It's the first generation. Right. Right. So these are adults that are encountering the gospel right. for the first time because it just happened. Right. 
But then what we read in those passages is that so-and-so was baptized and their entire household, or so-and-so and their family or their household. So you have, for example, in Acts where Peter goes up to Caesarea and baptizes the centurion Cornelius, the first Gentile right. convert. And it says then Peter baptizes him and his entire household, which is implied hit not only his servants, Okay, and yep. his children and everybody living in his household. You have another case in Acts where Paul goes to Philippi and he encounters this woman named Lydia and he preaches to her and she receives the news of Christ and Paul baptizes her and her entire family and household. So again, is there a verse that says, thou shalt baptize infants? No, but there's no verse that says thou shalt not baptize infants or thou shalt only baptize believers. So we have to put this together, like I said, by understanding the context of covenant theology mm -hmm. and scripture, by understanding the references to baptism in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts and the letters of Paul. And finally, we look at the teachings of those who are close to the apostles. So one of the things we do is we say, oh, all right, what was happening in the churches in the generation after? So right. those... Christians who had been instructed by the apostles in those first churches, what did they do? Well, they baptized infants, yeah. right? Okay. They yeah. were baptizing children. So somebody would typically, what we would have happen is the head of the family would accept Christ yep. and then his family and his household, including his servants, would all accept baptism and fall under the covenant protections of Christ. You don't see the concept of believer-only baptism until you get into some heretics in the Middle Ages, like the Cathars and Waldensians, and then you see that in the Anabaptists after the Reformation. But what's interesting in the Reformation is that all of the major reformers accepted infant baptism without question. So let's go through Protestants. Calvinists? right? Reformed yeah. Presbyterians, infant baptism. Lutherans, infant baptism. Anglicans, Church of England, infant baptism, right? It was only a very small group of dissenters, Anabaptists, they were called, because right. a second baptism who said, no, 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 we're going to hold it back. And we were having people baptized a second time. And that's because they didn't have an understanding of sacraments or covenant theology, right? Yep, And the sense that the sacraments are these signs. And you used the word at the beginning, it was the proclamation. So under that notion, here's what I would say, answering those two questions from the beginning, that sin for the Baptist is largely concerned with personal sin, not original sin. Okay, sure. Yep. Right? So I've done bad things in my life. Jesus has offered to pay my debt of sin, I have decided to take him up on his offer, and so I will be baptized to proclaim my decision. Right. Now, one of the things about that is it's sort of a celebration of my actions. Right. And don't get me wrong, there's the initial action of Christ dying on the cross for us, but I'm in a sense celebrating my decision to accept him rather than understanding that God has moved first in my life to begin to redeem me in the same way he did through the covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and the same mm -hmm. way he did with the tabernacle and the yeah. temple and circumcision 
and you know with the the, the prophet Samuel anointing you know, young King David and all these kinds of things, right? Where God anoints and sets things aside for his purpose and sets your lives aside and makes that covenant with you. I was still a Protestant pastor when my kids were all born. So I had the joy of, you know, publicly baptizing all of them as infants. And all the infants ever baptized, you know, I would, I would read the baptismal right. form and say these things. And I remember one of the things I would always say is, you know, to them afterwards is God has put his mark on you. Now, that does not guarantee that that child is going to grow up and make good moral choices. Right. Okay? Doesn't even that they're going to live up to the covenant promises that they have inherited. Right. But it does mean that God has put his mark on them and set them aside and marked them for his purpose. And that they now have that, and that is an addressing of the original sin, not the personal sin, because they haven't committed personal sins yet. Right. But that that is an addressing of that and setting them aside for God's purposes and preparing them to receive mm-hmm. Christ into them. So, you know, the, the Holy Spirit enters the temple or the tabernacle because it's a consecrated space. And that their life from the beginning, in a sense, has been made a consecrated space. It's up to them to decide then to grow into those covenant promises or not. Right. Which is why Catholics and even the Protestant denominations, most of them, you know, that are historical, always have something like confirmation. So like, right. you know, in the Calvinist tradition, we have something called profession of faith. Right. Or, right. But in the Catholic Church, it's the sacrament of confirmation. And I love that term because you, I love that better than profession of faith because in, in the Catholic Church, you say once that child has grown to a certain point, now they have, in a sense, have moral accountability, and they confirm the promises made in their baptism. Mm-hmm. They say, yes, I know that God has made covenant promises through the church and through my parents to me. I know that I have been a set aside for God's purposes, and I now confirm the purposes of God in my life. Actually, in the Catholic Church, there's an intermediate stage called First Communion, where you say the child has reached at least enough level of understanding to sort of participate in the liturgical life of the community mm-hmm. and to receive the Eucharist. And so they may not have a full understanding, but they have enough of an understanding and they have enough sort of moral accountability at this age to sort of come forward. What age is that? Typically. Seven, eight years old, okay. you know? So you, you start talking about kids that are able to sort of begin to understand yeah. that Jesus is here and that we accept Jesus and we participate right. and we participate in the life of the community. And then typically, you know, they're going to hit kind of the early teen years. And then that's when you say, okay, right. as, a, as a teenager, you're now right. able to, in a sense, take full moral responsibility. You know, and the Jews have the same thing. So, right, the Jews have circumcision, but then they have bar mitzvah. Yeah. And bar mitzvah means you have a son of the law, right? right. That's what it literally means. Yeah. So you now have achieved an age of maturity where you can be held accountable to yeah. the moral law. You were circumcised to be set aside and consecrated to right. the covenant, and now you are old enough to know better and take responsibility for your actions. And so in the same way, Baptism is that circumcising mark, and confirmation is the acceptance mm-hmm. of moral responsibility 
and confirming your faith. And it just strikes me that when you look at that notion of believer's baptism, it sort of puts God in, I'm going to be careful because I don't want to say that people who baptize only adults don't believe that Christ has done a great thing for us and died right, for us. Right. But it is sort of a celebration of your decision. Yeah. And a proclamation of your decision. And I can't help but feeling like as many times as I've seen it, that in some sense it's it's a celebration of of, of you deciding and there's a lot of right. you in it. Right. And when I have as a as a as a Protestant pastor that baptized children or now as a as a Catholic who watches baptisms and, 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 you know, as a, as a member of the parish watches the priest baptize being profoundly moved by God is acting first. God is extending his covenant into a new generation. Well, your explanation of this compared to my understanding of it that I brought with me is just far larger and more comprehensive and a much richer thing than than I've always understood it to be, and I like that. This is sort of like when my friends and I talked, we had a, one of our episodes about me talking with my friends, and they were saying their tendency was to sort of minimalize all of that and not give it any much weight other than baptism was just an outward sign and and yeah. not that it's a, not that it's a small thing, but then that's but that's all it is right. and this is a, you know smart, right. Right. Richard. And I would just say, even in the context, like I said, of, I mean, I, I had this conversation before I became Catholic over and over and over again because I was a Calvinist. Right. And again, all the major historic Protestant denominations, branches, Calvinism, Lutheranism, Anglicanism, whatever, all practiced infant baptisms. I've been having this conversation right. my whole ministry career right. about covenant promises. And, you know, that was a huge deal in Calvinism is the the notion of the covenants and the covenant promises extended to the next generation. And I can say as a pastor, as a parent, there was that sense of I want to mark my children. I want to make them heirs of the covenant. Does that mean they will grow up just as, you know, the Israelites were given the temple, they were given the tabernacle, right? I mean, the Mosaic covenant, then they went and wandered in the desert for 40 years because they could never get their act together. Right. Right. It doesn't mean that because you baptize that infant that they're not going to wander for 40 years trying to get their act together. Right. And I would, you know, I've always said that's that's biblical. For for, for my Protestant Baptist friends who want to say, well, why was this in the sky? Is that biblical? I go, well, I don't know. Let's let's look at these things I've been talking about, right? Because right. these notions of covenants and and circumcision and and, you know, God, you know, initiating sanctification in the next generation and then asking them. To respond, it certainly seems like I, I could go on for another hour and give you biblical examples, right, right. biblical stories, but then you get to the testimony of the early church, the testimony even of the Protestant reformers, most of them. So really, I think it does go back to that earlier conversation we had about your friends, that it is, is this, this strange sense to sort of reduce the, the depth and mystery of God to something that's very transactional. Right. I remember that episode we called this yes. Catholicism spooky, and I said, you know, it strikes me that it's this notion that I want to reduce my relationship or reduce Christianity, my relationship with Christ, to this purely transactional thing. And you know those analogies that have been used over the years, like, well, it's like you ran up a big debt, like you ran up, you know, a right. million dollars on credit cards, and you couldn't pay them at all, 
And then this guy came along and paid off your credit card debt or offered to pay off your credit card right. debt. And all you had to do was accept him paying off your credit card debt. And right. you did. You accepted and said thank you. And now, you know, you plug claim that. But see, there's so much that's transactional about that. Well, and, and then you bring it's it- It's a transactional sort of metaphor. Then you bring it down. What you're doing when you do that is you bring it down, you bring what God is doing down to your level of understanding and you're sort of saying, well, you're reducing what God is doing to something that you can, that you can explain and I would rather have a little mystery or a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and again, the richness of the full biblical understanding of, of God initiating covenants, the notion of original sin versus personal sin, the continuity with the old covenant under Abram and Moses transformed and redeemed into the new perfect covenant in Christ marked by baptism. A couple of things, quick things about baptism before we kind of wrap it that I want to say is the metaphor of baptism is important to understand. So what a lot of people look at is this notion that baptism is washing your sin away, right? Because that yeah. seems like the obvious yeah. thing. It's like you're going to get yeah. washed with water, right? So you go in the water and your sin is washed off you. I mean, that at a certain level, that seems kind of obvious, right? right? The problem with that is that's not actually the biblical understanding of baptism, or at least the baptism of Christ. Now, New Testament often makes this distinction between the baptism of John okay, yeah. versus the baptism of Christ. John the Baptist was washing people, washing their sins away. So they were going down to John and they were repenting and being baptized by John. And that actually had its roots in the Old Testament because there was the ritual washing as you came into the tabernacle or temple. So as the priests would come in to perform the sacrifices, there were these, these basins of water in the right. courtyard of the tabernacle or temple, and the priests were to wash themselves to make themselves clean to serve God. And so the baptism of John was a kind of an Old Testament sign or symbol, taking that Old Testament notion of the priests washing themselves to serve God and saying to the people, come down to the Jordan and wash yourselves to be made clean to serve God. Okay? But when you look at New Testament passages about baptism, like in that Colossians passage, it's not about washing, it's about being buried. Right. So as Christ is buried and rises from the dead, so in baptism we are, in a sense, yes. buried right. with Christ in the water to rise again. Now, what do you mean buried in the water? Let me give you a couple of Old Testament references. One of them is the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay. So, again, initiated by God. The Hebrews are brought to the edge of the Red Sea. The Pharaoh and his chariots are charging up to, right. you know, spear them, and they're freaking out. And then God opens the Red Sea, and they descend into it and pass through, through it. it to emerge to life, right? And then on the other side, there's this song of Miriam where she sings that, you know, we have passed through right. the waters to life yeah. and the covenant. And when they get to the other side, then that's when they go to Sinai and make the covenant. Another one is Jonah. Remember, Jesus mm -hmm. said the sign will be given to you, the sign of Jonah. 
Jonah, right, is on the boat because he's disobeying God. And then the sailors say, why are we getting, you know, there's a storm on He goes, well, I was disobeying God. So they throw him overboard. And remember what happens? He descends deep, deep, deep into the land of the dead. He, he has this poem in Jonah where he yeah. says, I descended into the depths of the earth. And then God brought me back up to life after right. three days. And Jesus says to this generation, nothing will be given but the sign of Jonah that I will go down to death in the water right. and be risen up. So Paul says that in baptism, we are united to Christ in his death. And so it is a, a uniting with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what the symbol of baptism really is. And once again, in all those instances, it's what God does for us, not just a washing of our personal moral choices. Does the Catholic Church recognize other baptisms? If I joined the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. would they recognize the baptism I went, I, when I was 12? Probably. They recognized mine. So okay. when you would enter, your pastor would ask you to describe the circumstances okay, sure. of that. Okay. So were you... The, the questions that I were asked were, you baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? right? And, and some questions to make sure that, in a sense, your baptism was a legitimate right. baptism. Okay. And in my case, I described mine. I'll, I'll tell the story here about my baptism, because I had a pretty weird baptism, man. So here's my baptismal story. I was a college student, and I had started going to this campus Bible study, campus crusade Bible study, and in some guy's dorm room at 10 o'clock on Tuesday nights or something. Right. And over the next, you know, a few months, we, you know, read these passages for moments and this and that. And I was reading, I think, Mere Christianity, one of the yeah. guys had given me at the time and blah, blah, blah. And after about three months, they were like, well, so, you know, do you believe or not? And I mean, like 19 years old, sitting right. in some guy's, you know, dorm room at 10 o'clock eating ding-dongs right. or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I think I do. I think I think I do do. Now I wasn't in a church. We're not saying in a church. Right. It's just like dorm room. And they they're like, I go. So so now what I do? What do I do? And these other nineteen year old guys are like, Well, it says here, believe and be baptized. And I was like, Okay, so so what do we do? And they're like, Let's go to the college pool tomorrow morning during open lap swim and baptize. Uh. I was like, can we do that? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah let's, let's yeah. do it. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> they just decided to. So the next morning we went down to the the the, the college pool during the, like it's 6.30 or something right. like that when they had like lap swim. And we, and, and we jumped in like the one of the lap lanes and then they like baptized me. And then we went to Denny's for breakfast. Yeah. And, and that's how I was baptized. I so when I entered the Catholic church... The pastor said, oh, tell me about your baptism. And I told him that story. And he's like, was it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, okay. Right. So, so that's a thing. And then the other thing I just want to say about baptism is, you know, the importance of it with respect to children and some of the things I hear from some listeners or friends who grieve that their grandchildren are not baptized mm -hmm. because they, you know, they're, they're faithful Catholics or some, and, and, and they go, my kids, you know, have kids and they're not baptized and I'm worried about them because the 
Christian church has always seen baptism as essential to salvation. Because what does Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Right from the, the Great Commission, Jesus makes baptism an essential component yeah. of conversion. And so there is this concern that I know a lot of grandparents have yeah. that their grandchildren have not yet been baptized. And so I hope that, you know, this episode will, you know, maybe give somebody some, I don't want to say ammunition, but some tools or some words or some messages to maybe impress on uh, their children the significance of having yeah. their children baptized. And for those of you who have not baptized your children, if you are believers, it's an essential biblical yeah. thing that the church has celebrated not only as Catholics, but in Eastern Orthodox and and all branches of Christianity, including most Protestants up until very recently in history. Yeah. Good stuff, Greg. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.